God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament book, Numbers. That's on page 108. If you picked up an ESV on the way in or if you happen to have uh, one, it's probably on page 108. Page 108, Numbers. Uh, We are beginning this new series today, going through this book uh, of Moses. And, And I think before we get started, maybe just a few introductory comments to help us all get the lay of the land Uh, Numbers uh, is taken from the Greek title of this book, uh, Arithmoi, translated Numbers, largely because of the numbers, the censuses that we find, the beginning of the book and then again at the end. But if you prefer, I I know probably a lot of you mathematically minded people will love uh, a book called Numbers, Uh, but for the rest of us, perhaps you would like the Hebrew title, which is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And that's really what Numbers is about. It's about God's people in the wilderness with him. Uh, The whole book uh, breaks out into about five major chunks. There are three big sections of teaching at three different places. And those three sections of teaching are broken up with uh, a sort of uh, travel diary of, of how the people got from one place to another. So the first 10 chapters, we will be at Mount Sinai, that first major block of teaching. And then in the middle, they are at Kadesh Barnea. And then finally, at the end, they are outside the promised land in the plains of Moab. So beginning today in Numbers, or in the wilderness, uh, here at, uh, at Sinai. The other thing we need to know is that this is a different kind of book than we have been studying recently, uh, and it warrants a different kind of approach. You'll be glad to know that I do not intend to walk verse by verse or line by line through numbers. Uh, I don't think uh, we're, we're really supposed to take it that way, but rather we're going to be looking at much larger pieces uh, and, and pulling out some large uh, observations and applications from the text for us and then moving on. So today we will be looking at the entirety of chapter 1, and I'm going to read all of chapter 1. I may not always do that in the future. We may come to passages where I will reference them, I'll give you a homework assignment to do a little bit of reading on your own, but today as we get into it, I am going to read the entirety uh, of the first chapter, and just to get uh, a sense of what we're going to see, you're going to find three major chunks. These are not the points of my sermon, uh, but three major chunks here. First, the Lord will command a census of the people, and he will tell Moses who the helpers are that will help him uh, to number those 12 tribes. And then you'll see the list of the people by their tribes. And finally, you'll see uh, a special note on the Levites who are put to the side, not included with the census, uh, but given a different task. Thematically, Uh, The the Levites really fit with what we'll see next week in chapter 2, so we'll save a lot of our uh, comments on the Levites for then. Uh, But there is uh, an important point that we need to see here uh, with the Levites included uh, among all of the tribes of God's people. So with, with that in mind, those three major chunks, let's pray together. And then let's come to God's word uh, and seek his, uh, his blessing as we read together. Let's, let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word and your account and your history with your people. We thank you that you are the God who leads us all through the wilderness of our sin and unto yourself. You're the God who has every hair on our heads numbered. And so whether we see in this book the numbers of your people or the way that you led them, uh, Lord, it speaks to us of your goodness. Help us to see that. Uh, Help us to see our Savior. 
the one represented by the serpent raised up in the wilderness, the one who himself was raised up to draw all men to himself. Help us to see him and to rejoice in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. In the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers, and these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elizer, the son of Shedeir. From Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerishadai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab. From Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zoar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helan. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazer, from Benjamin, Abidon, the son of Gideonai, from Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron, from Gad, Eliasif, the son of Deuel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men, who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the people of Gad, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Of the people of Judah, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, Every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Judah, were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward. Every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Issachar, were 54,400. Of the people of Zebulun, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Zebulun, were fifty-seven thousand four hundred. Of the people of Joseph, namely, of the people of Ephraim, 
their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500 of the people of Manasseh. Their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Manasseh, were 32,200. Of the people of Benjamin, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Benjamin, were 35,400. Of the people of Dan, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Of the people of Asher, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher, were 41,500. Of the people of Naphtali, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe, for the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. Uh, you, uh, you may remember, uh, if you've read them, that it's, uh, it's Mr. Beaver who is the first one to say those words uh, that gives strength to almost everybody in the story. It happens pretty early on, after all of the Pevensey children have tumbled their way into Narnia together, uh, after they've been uh, led through the woods silently by a robin, after they've found out that Mr. Tumnus has been abducted, and after they have had their first experience meeting a talking animal. Well, Mr. Beaver beckons them closer because you never know which of the trees might be listening. And he speaks in a low whisper, and he says, they say Aslan is on the move. 
Well, that word becomes a catchphrase uh, in the story. It becomes something of a, a, a hopeful promise of better days ahead. And, and Father Christmas is the second to say it. He repeats those words because now the spring is getting nearer. Now the spell is almost broken. So Aslan is on the move, he says. The witch's magic is weakening. In the books, that phrase, those words serve a sort of double purpose. On the one hand, they are an encouragement. On the other hand, they're a battle cry. Because Aslan is coming, everything is going to be put right. But because Aslan is coming, it's time to get ready for war. So you remember, Father Christmas says those heartening words, and then he presents the whole crowd with gifts. A sword and a shield for Peter, and a bow and a horn for Susan, and a dagger and a healing tonic for Lucy. It's an encouragement on the one hand, but it's also a battle cry. Now, uh, you know, uh, Narnia is just a fairy tale. Uh, Aslan, of course, is just a, a poetic reimagining uh, of our Savior, but there is a history behind that fiction, and the history is even more dramatic than Lewis was able to imagine. In the book of Numbers, we're going to encounter again and again the encouragement and the battle cry that Yahweh, the Lord, is on the move. As we begin these studies, that's something we need to get straight. That in these chapters, we're going to encounter lots of things and lots of people and, and lots of details. We're going to find lists of names and, and censuses. We're going to find laws and prophecies. We're going to hear the people grumbling against Moses. They're going to hear uh, Moses praying for the people. And as we go through, we may be tempted to keep our eyes on the characters that we can see in the drama before us. But the central character of the story of Numbers will remain unseen. He'll be there, he'll be shrouded in the cloud and in the fire. He will be there speaking to his people as he leads them in the wilderness. Numbers, like the rest of the Bible, is a story, first of all, about God. It is a real-life historical record of the God who took this people by the hand and led them through the wilderness for 40 years. It's the record of the God who met his people's every need by natural and supernatural means. Numbers is a history, but Numbers is God's history. Numbers is the history of God's people with him, and it reminds us as we go through over and over that it's the Lord who is on the move, and it ought to be an encouragement, and it ought to be a battle cry. Now, in the opening chapters, there are a few things we need to see. Uh, the first is that the Lord is the God who speaks to his people. The Lord is the God who speaks to his people. I'm not going to point it out every time that we see it in the text because it would become tedious. It, it shows up over and over and over and over again in Numbers. Almost the entire book is structured around the fact that God speaks to his people. But notice the way that the book opens. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Actually, in Hebrew narration, the verbs typically come first. Literally, it says, and spoke the Lord unto Moses in the wilderness. It is speech. Significantly, it is God's speech that opens the book of Numbers, and that is significant. 
It's significant for what it reveals about our God, and it is significant for the way that it reveals his characteristic dealings with us. What does it reveal about God that he speaks? Well, it reveals that he is the God who is involved. It reveals that he's the God who is active. He's he's involved with his people because he speaks. Sometimes we say that silence is golden. Other times we know that that's not true. And so you know the experience of, of being in a time, in a place, in a situation where the fact that you don't know what to say makes you feel helpless, makes you feel powerless. It happens very often at funerals. It happens in hospital waiting rooms. It happens when your daughter comes home from her second semester at college and tearfully she tells you about that boy that she thought she could trust, that boy that even though she said no, he wouldn't listen. You get the sense that you should say something. You ought to have something to tell her and you have nothing to say. You don't don't know. You're speechless and not in a good way. You feel helpless. That is not an experience that has ever happened to the God of the Bible and of history. He has never been at a loss for words when words were necessary for his people. And it reveals that he's not a pretend God. He's not a a God who's just a, a powerless deity. He's not some God aloof in the heavens busying himself with who knows what while his people are in need. You remember the showdown with uh, the prophets of Baal on the mountain of Carmel back in 1 Kings chapter 18. And there are all the prophets and they're shouting aloud and they're dancing and limping and they're cutting themselves with lances trying to get the attention of the God they thought was there. And there's Elijah, the prophet of the real God, and he's taunting them, shout louder. Maybe he can't hear you, he says. So they shouted louder. All day long they raved on, but 1 Kings 18, verse 28 says, But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It is just like the idols that we create for ourselves. Give all your time and all your attention to the work of your hands. Bow down before them and make your little offerings and ask them to say something to you, to give you some direction for your directionless life. And what do you get? Nada. Zilch. Nothing. Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. The idols are idle. And by their speechlessness, they reveal how powerless and false they really are, but not the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Then again, maybe that's the problem. Because you've never heard him speak. It's not like he spoke to Moses. And maybe you're plagued by all the prayers you've prayed and all the offerings you've made, and you wonder when in the muck of your suffering God is going to show up and he's going to speak to you the way he spoke to him, face to face, as a man speaks with a friend, it says. And we tell ourselves that would be better. That's what we want. 
But then we remember what happened at Sinai, the response of the people when they actually heard him. A time when they heard the voice of the Lord, when they saw the fiery cloud, when they heard the clash of the trumpets, and they fell on their faces and they begged that the Lord would not speak to them anymore. Instead, let him speak through Moses. Let him deliver his revelations of himself through the mediator whom he has chosen. And it's incredibly consistent in the way he works with us, isn't it? Hebrews tells us that in former days he spoke through visions and he spoke through prophecies and he spoke through dreams. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, by his mediator, the one whom he has chosen, the one who was with God at the beginning, the only one who is face to face with the Father. He's the one who speaks to us by his word and his spirit. It shows us who God is, and it, it shows us how he meets the needs of his people. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Actually, the, the word begins with a conjunction. If your middle school grammar teacher were, were grading this, she'd mark it with a red pen. Literally, it says, and spoke the Lord unto Moses. It means it's a story already in progress. It's pointing back to what's already happened. It says that this is uh, in the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt. That's to make us remember. God's been bringing them all along. It's reminding us of God's initiative uh, to bring them to where they are now, to bring them into covenant blessing, to give them a hope of a future together with him. It challenges us to remember that all of our interactions with God begin with him speaking to us first. Yeah, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness at the tent of meeting, but there would be no tent of meeting in the wilderness if God had not spoken to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. There would be no speech to Pharaoh if God had not spoken to Moses in the burning bush. There would be no speech to Moses in the burning bush if God had not spoken to Abram so many years before, and you can trace all those steps all the way back to the grand initiating word. Before there was anybody else to speak with or to speak to, let us make man in our image. What difference does God speaking make? What difference does it make if he's speaking to you or not? It makes all the difference in the world. The God who speaks is everything. There's no salvation without God's calling. There is no promise without God's covenant. There is no Savior without God's declaration of redemption before the foundations of the world to save a people beloved in Christ Jesus. So as we go on in numbers, don't miss those little words. We're not going to point them out, but you're going to see them almost everywhere. Don't remember that the Lord speaks to his people. That he's the God who's involved. He's the Lord who moves the story of your salvation one decree after another, one statement of blessing after the next. He is the God who is unlike the idols because he is the God who speaks. When he speaks to his people, what does he say? Well, here in Numbers, he gives them a word of assurance. I don't need to rehearse all of the 
the details of the text for you. We've already read them, and the basic point is clear. God speaks to Moses, and he commands him to number the people of Israel. It is a census text. And so verses 2 to 46 give us this list of names and, uh, and numbers, all the tribes and all the chiefs and all the men aged 20 and upward who were present at Sinai before the trip began. Today, you get your little survey in the mail every 10 years. You fill out your household information, you put it back, postage prepaid, send it off to the Census Bureau, and they take all that data and they do something with it. I don't know. They, they track births and deaths. They, they track population trends among self-reported ethnic identities, and you can find all that stuff on the website. But in the ancient world, there were two very good reasons for keeping an accurate count of the people who were in a nation. One reason was taxation, and the other was military service. So if a king knew how many people he had in his, uh, in his nation, he had a pretty good idea of how much money he should expect from them. He knew the projects he could take on. He knew the, the infrastructure he could attempt to build. And if he knew how many fighting men he had, he had a good idea of how strong the army was. He knew which other nations he could take over and conquer. Census data in the ancient world was mostly about money, and it was mostly about power. And for just those reasons, you might remember that later in Israel, David falls into God's condemnation when he conducts a census that the Lord had not commanded. Why? Well, because he wanted to see how big the nation was. He wanted to comfort himself with with all the money and all of the power that he commanded. Now this census is different in numbers. This is one that God tells the people to take. Not because he didn't know how many people were in the nation. Not because God was curious to see if maybe they could take on the Canaanites when they finally get to the land. This census was not conducted so that God could learn something. The census was conducted so that the people could see how faithful God had been to the promises he made to them in the beginning. You remember way back toward the beginning when God was still dealing with Abram. Do you remember when the full contingent of God's covenant community numbered exactly two people? One man and his wife. Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Here's Abram, and he's getting older. It's been a couple decades since the Lord spoke to him the first time, and you notice he says, I continue childless. That text actually can be interpreted, I shall die childless. Here's the direction we're going, Lord. He says, your reward will be very great. He says, I'm going to die without anything. What do you mean my reward will be great? What will you give me? Genesis 15, verse 5, And the Lord brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Fast forward three generations. Genesis tells us that all those who went down into Egypt 
uh, with Jacob were 75 people in all. Fast forward a bit more, 400 years later, now they number 600,000 fighting men on foot. When you include the women and the children, the number is probably closer to about 2.5 million. That's roughly half of the total population of the entire Boston metro area. That is an enormous number. It's an almost unfathomable number at this time especially. They were a group so large that they had to be broken down into tribes and counted by clans and families. They were a people so numerous that later, toward the end of the book, the pagan king Balak will describe them and say that they are a people who cover the surface of the earth. And then when Balaam comes to do Balak's bidding, he goes up on top of a high mountain and it says he can only see a fraction of the families. I think when the Lord spoke to Moses in Sinai in the wilderness and he told them to count the people, I think a younger generation would say that God was flexing. He's showing off a bit. Not, not in sinful pride the way that we might, but he's drawing attention to what only he is capable of. This people who are so large, this increase that is so big, it could only have come from him. This promise fulfilled so faithfully, it had to have been the hand of God behind it. In fact, the major problem in this text for most modern readers of numbers is just how big the number actually is. So if you read any of the commentaries written in the last hundred years or so, they all contain this obligatory section where they try to describe the problem with believing that there was a number of Israelites quite this large and then offering all of their interpretive uh, solutions to fix that problem. Essentially, they're trying different approaches to shrink the number to make it seem more believable. And almost none of the commentaries that I read this week seem to be open to the possibility that it actually happened the way Numbers says that it happened. In fact, one of, the, one of the scholars who otherwise was very faithful to the text, a scholar who was very helpful in my study, he puts the difficulty this way. He's trying to tell us what's wrong with the text. He says, it's hard to believe that such a number could be sustained for 40 years in the wilderness without constant, day-to-day, -day, miraculous intervention. Yes, precisely. I think you've got it. That's exactly what the Lord is showing us. There's this group so large that only he could have made him. Here's this group with, with needs so big that only he could meet them. And when the Lord speaks to Moses in the wilderness, it's as if he's saying, get a load of this. Right? Go out and number them. If you can, go out and number them and see what the Lord can do. It's a word of assurance. God is the God who fulfills his promises. And if that is what God can do with a single nation through natural childbirth in the span of a few hundred years, just imagine what he can do by his spirit as the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth to you. I said that this number was almost unfathomable. But they fathomed it. They found the bottom. 603,550. It's a big number, but they can count that high. 
It took 12 men, probably took a lot more helpers besides, but they got there. John says in Revelation chapter 7 that around the throne of God, he saw a great multitude that no one could number. He says it was a group from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were there clothed in white robes. They had palm branches in their hands. They were singing the song of salvation that belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And you read Numbers chapter 1, and it seems a little boring, maybe. It's only a census. It's just a list of names and numbers. People out in the wilderness. It's only heads and tribes, but it shows us what God is capable of. It shows us the way he always keeps his promises. And so when God speaks to us, he speaks a word of assurance. He also speaks to us a call to arms. One of the obvious features in this census is the weight that it places on family units. Ultimately, it gets down to each individual, right? It gets down to the, the names and the numbers of heads and, and every person, names and heads, every male from 20 years old and upward. But all of those individuals that are being dealt with are grouped. They're put together in their family connections, and so each tribe comes by their generations, and they come by their clans. They come by their father's households. And so you get the sense that, that this uh, numbering, this list, isn't just about numbering the people. It's also about confirming who are real Israelites by birth. It's about marking out those family uh, connections that exist. It's about confirming them to see who has a right to claim the promises of the covenant. So as we're reading in verse 18... We find it says that on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans. That's what our version says. If you have the King James in front of you, it says that they declared their pedigrees after their families. That's the idea. It's ratification. It's confirming who they were and the right they had to claim these things. You remember after the exile when the people came back to the land. We have the list of their pedigree and the list of their clans, and there are some, they say, they couldn't prove that they had a share with us in Israel. They're coming out now to claim God's promises. They're coming out now, arranged by families and arranged by clans, because when they get to Canaan, that's how the land is going to be divided. And so this census, dull as it might seem to our modern ears, was about God calling his people to lay claim by faith to the promises of the covenant that he had made with their fathers. By the way, that's the, the continual trajectory in the book of Numbers. Everything in this entire book looks forward to Canaan because everything looks forward to the promises of God. We're going to see that again at the end of the book in the second census. After the wilderness journey is really over, when many of the men, all the men, except for two, aged 20 and above, died in the wilderness, they come in and, and God commands Moses to number the people all over again. And they do, and as soon as they do, we deal with the question of what to do with the daughters of a man named Zelophed. Zelophed, somebody we don't meet anywhere else, but he was included in the first census. He was numbered. His family relationships were, were confirmed at Sinai 
and he died in the wilderness with all the rest, and he left no sons. And the question is, what do we do with his daughters and the blessing that should fall to his family? Are we to imagine that God's faithfulness falls deaf because there were no sons to give it to? So yes, this census is about clans. It's about families, but it's because this census is about Canaan. It's about God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to his offspring forever. So you get the sense that, that this is about families, but, but not just families, it's also about men. Specifically, it's about males, right? Not, not humanity, but men. All the men aged 20 years old and upward. Now, that's the other problem that modern readers have with this text. Oh, it seems so misogynistic. It seems so sexist. All these men. It's not about misogyny. It's not about sexism. It's about war. This is a war registry. It's a call to arms. You heard it repeated over and over. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to go through all 12 of those tribes and all their numbers uh, in connection with each of the tribes. We hear it repeated, but it all takes its flavor from verse 3. Look at verse 3. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Now it's rare, but that word company is one of the Hebrew words you already know. The word is Saba. And you know that word because you know the title that Isaiah uses for the Lord over and over and over again. He calls him Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. This is military terminology. It means that these men are not being registered for some land grab like they were in an old rerun of Supermarket Sweep. Remember that? You run in and grab the ham because that's worth the best. And whatever you can put your hands on, it's yours for the taking. That's fine. Now, these men are signing up for service in the Israelite militia. The Lord is letting them know that, yes, he has a promise for them. Yes, the land is theirs for the taking. Yes, there is an inheritance waiting for them. But if they hope to have it, they need to be prepared to fight for it. And not a single man is exempt from that call. That's why we read about the Levites. It's true that they did not go out to war with the other tribes. It's true that they were exempt from the census. But they never got a pass on dangerous service on behalf of the Lord. They were given a different kind of service. They were those who were to be a buffer between the holiness of God and the sin of the people. They were on constant guard duty. They were to take up arms even against their brothers and their fathers, if need be, to maintain the holiness of God among the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. When the Lord calls his people to arms, no one is exempt from the struggle. Now you know, as well as I do, that to many people in the modern church, that sounds like a bait and switch. We almost want to say, wait a minute, that, that can't be the deal, right? I thought it was supposed to be given to the people. I thought it was supposed to be God's promise and his gift. I mean, back in Genesis, isn't that what the Lord said? The Lord said would it would be a gift. Genesis 15, 18, on that day the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, 
to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And if it's a gift, how can he expect them to work for it? If the Lord has promised the land to his people, why is he letting them know that between them and their promised inheritance, between them and their covenantal blessings, there is a whole campaign of battle and conquest? There's conflict and there's discipline. Why is he preparing the people to fight for the blessings he's promised to give to them? But this is also the way that God works with you. The Lord gives your salvation as a gift. Free and clear through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, the Lord works faith in your soul by the power and the calling of the Holy Spirit. And then through the instrument of that faith, he takes Christ's righteousness and credits it to your account. It's not your righteousness. In fact, the faith didn't even come from you. It came from him. He gives a gift via another gift that he's already given to you. That's how salvation works. The Lord gives salvation as a gift completely by his sovereign giving, but then he makes your salvation difficult. He makes your Christian life an uphill climb. How does he do it? Well, he makes your sins more visible. He makes your conscience more tender. He makes all of your circumstances press into your life in all the wrong places so that you look around yourself and begin to despair of ever making any progress in this thing called sanctification by your own efforts, and that is by design. He does it on purpose to make you humble and holy at the same time, just like Jesus. You know, it used to be a common saying among Christians. It's fallen out of use But it used to be a common saying that there is no crown without the cross. It meant that that if Jesus showed us what life of obedience looked like, if he showed us that it involves suffering and sacrifice, we ought not to think that our Christian lives will be any easier than his was. It helps us to understand this census is not just about a blessing. It's also about a buy-in. It means that when the Lord calls you to follow Jesus, he calls you to fight for him. Matthew Henry gets this right. He says, the whole church being militant, those are only the two that we can think of, right? We sometimes think of the church in terms of visible and invisible, but other times we think of the church triumphant, those who have already won the battle, and the church militant, those who are still in it. Matthew Henry says, the whole church being militant, those only are counted true members of it who have enlisted themselves soldiers of Jesus Christ. For our life, our Christian life, is a warfare. What it means is that God's word of assurance and his call to arms are not at odds. In fact, they're perfectly compatible in your Christian life. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gives us this great benediction in the middle of a letter. He says that the Lord is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. Our God is a God of boundless grace and limitless gifts and salvation that we cannot begin to conceive or contain. The Lord is able far more abundantly, he says in chapter 3. But then in chapter 6, he says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we say, which one is it? 
It is, a, is it a gift or is it a battle? Is it a blessing or is it a call to arms? Does the Lord bless us abundantly or does he expect us to stand in the evil day? And the answer, of course, is yes. The Lord speaks a word of assurance. The Lord speaks a call to arms, but they're the same word. And they come to us in the same calling, and they come to all God's people in exactly the same way. And Paul already said that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Matthew Henry was right. All God's people are engaged in the battle. All God's soldiers are enlisted for the fight. Because our God is the God who speaks to his people. And as we'll see over and over again in Numbers, our God is on the move. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious and righteous Lord, we thank you for this word, which speaks to us of our salvation. We thank you that you did indeed take your people by the hand and, and lead them out of Egypt and into your promise. We thank you that you take us out of the deadness of our sin and raise us to new life in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to put to death what is earthly in us, to live again in newness of life with Christ Jesus, our Savior, to walk with you in faithfulness, to be engaged in the battle, Lord, not to win our salvation, but because you already have. Help us, O oh Lord, to walk with you and trust you, and lead us to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now to a table that proclaims to us the gift of God for sinners. This table is set before us with tangible signs, symbols of bread and a cup, reminding us of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and of his perfect sinless life, which he came and gave for the sake of his people. This table reminds us that with the Lord there is fellowship. With the Lord there is welcome. With the Lord there is life everlasting and joy in his presence. But it reminds us that that life comes at a cost. That joy has to be purchased. And he's the one who has paid the price for us. And so as we come to this table, this table is for all those who have responded to God's invitation through Jesus Christ by believing in his name and the son that he has sent. Those who have been baptized and become members by public profession of a church where his gospel is believed and his word is preached. You don't have to be a member here at Redeemer. You need to be in fellowship with him and with his people. And if so, this table is for you, and, and his promises are for you. His word of assurance. Also, his call to action, to walk with him and follow. And to be engaged in the battle of faith that he calls us each to. That here 
uh, that is also here at the table. It's for all those who are his. So let's read together uh, the words of institution as we find them in Mark chapter 14, that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious and glorious Lord, we thank you for this table set before us. A table in the wilderness, in the presence of our enemies, and Lord, the enemy is the one that is within, the sin of our own hearts. And yet you have conquered not only those enemies that are outside, but also the indwelling sin and the remaining guilt and the stain of our own unrighteousness. By taking the record that stood against us and nailing it to the cross, burying it with Christ Jesus and raising us to new life with you. We thank you, O Lord, for this promise of your gospel, this reminder of his work, and this reminder of our inheritance kept undefiled and unfading for those who are yours. We pray that as we come to this table, you would remind us of our fellowship with you, that you would give us real fellowship with you by faith. Help us to eat and drink upon the merits and the righteousness of Christ, and so live unto eternal life with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples, and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, giver of all good gifts, we thank you for the gift of your Son. And by the indwelling of your Spirit, we thank you for the faith that draws us to him, unites us to your saving purposes, and gives us life and forgiveness forever. We pray, Father, that you would continue to work faith in our hearts, keep and preserve us until that day when we eat and drink together with you. In the kingdom of God, we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response today in the Green Trinity Hymnal is number 349. O thou who the shepherd of Israel art, won't you stand as we sing together? <laughs> 